You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we talk with sociologist Gavin Ray about some of the problems with the field of Marxist sociology pioneered by Michael Burrovoy and Eric Olinwright. Ray argues that by rejecting Marx's idea of crisis and value, their sociology is left with a lot of problems. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Gavin Ray about Marxist sociology. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Yes, Marxist Humanist Initiative will be holding a public discussion on Sunday, September 18, via Skype. And it's going to be on the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision and women's continuing struggle to control their lives. And this will be will be meeting between 1 and 3 p.m. East Coast time in the United States, uh, Eastern Daylight Time. Attendance is by invitation. Uh, so if you are not a member or supporter of MHI or previously invited, you should apply, write to MHI, include a few words about yourself and your interest in a Marxist humanist perspective. Today is September 7th, and for this current event section, we're going to be talking about a ruling that uh, came down in New Mexico yesterday on the 6th. A county commissioner by the name of Coy Griffin, who has been convicted of participating in the uh, January 6th riot, he was removed from his office as a county commissioner by a judge in New Mexico. Uh, The judge cited the uh, 14th Amendment as grounds for barring him from ever participating in public office. This opens up the possibility that other public officials who participated in the Capitol uh, insurrection could be removed from public office, uh, including perhaps even uh, Donald Trump in the future, who could be banned from running for office under the 14th Amendment. Actually, it's extremely interesting. The 14th Amendment does not ban somebody from running for office. Okay, I I, I didn't get the distinction either, but I read something today about this. It bars them from holding office. Donald Trump can run and this and that, but I was reading electoralvote.com, as I often do, and they have a little piece, one insurrection and you're out. And they say, look, some minor official in uh, New Mexico But, quote, it occurs to us that other insurrectionist politicians are never going to be able to rest easy. The 14th Amendment doesn't prohibit the election of insurrectionists to office. It prohibits insurrectionists from holding office. So a person like Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano could be targeted for a suit at any time. Oh, and since they are not being charged with a crime, per se, double jeopardy likely doesn't apply. You you can't be charged twice with a crime if you've gotten off the first time in the U.S. But double jeopardy doesn't apply here because it's not a a charge of a crime. So they say, so it could be a lawsuit every month or maybe even every week for these folks. 
Christopher Bates, who wrote this, he's not a, a lawyer as far as I know, but there are people who, who are and who've thought about this. Interesting. The same day that this ruling by, uh, by this judge in New Mexico came out, the Anti-Defamation League released a report on this Oathkeeper database leak. It was, it's a leak of a membership list for the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers, of course, the far-right group whose leader was uh, indicted for a seditious conspiracy for participating in the January 6th insurrection. The ADL did a lot of research going through the names on this database leak and seeing how many of these people were public officials or cops or military personnel. And they provide a map. You can click on each state in the country and see how many people in each state are on this membership list and how many elected officials or police officers, military personnel, etc. are on this membership list. Now, some of the people on the list who were contacted by the ADL claimed, oh, I was never actually a member. You know, maybe my sign up for an email list at some point or I used to be a member, but not anymore. So there was a, a real attempt to distance themselves from the Oath Keepers at this point. But I found it interesting that the same day there's a, one form of accountability for January 6th in the form of this uh, county commissioner losing his job. There's also this ADL database, which is trying to out people and call people out for maybe their close relationship to um, far-right groups. Keepers, of course, is an organization which uh, part of its philosophy is to like, infiltrate uh, local-level political offices to build like parallel institutions within institutions, which is, you know, right out of a typical fascist playbook. So it's good to see that, you know, there are different forms of fight back against these types of takeover. Well, of course, you know, what used to be fringe is now not so fringe. But the Proud Boys and the, the Oath Keepers, they had this uh, meeting in a parking garage on January 5th, uh, 2021, you know, uh, the evening before the insurrection. Uh, I don't think all the information has come out, but... Um, yeah, the Proud Boys have also taken over the Miami-Dade Republican Party, apparently. So they, they're also now, like, infiltrating and, and taking over Republican cells. But these people are just, you know, like, the low-level muscle. Mr. Big is, is, is sitting there in, in, in Mar-a-Lago. As, as long as these actions just go against these, these low-level people, it's, uh, it has some symbolic significance... But there's kind of probably a bottomless well of white supremacists and other deplorables that can be riled up by the politicians when, when the time comes. So what, what I'm hoping is that this kind of a decision that came down against uh, Coy Griffin will be used creatively. So much of the legal actions of the liberals and the, the left is to go by the book to make great legal arguments and then have some Trumpite judge in Florida who shouldn't even be handling the case say, oh yeah, you got to appoint a special master, ha 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 ha, right? I mean, everybody knows it. These people are not looking at any law. They're not judging. They don't have a different legal philosophy. They start with, here's the result that we want and here's what we can throw together to put some mere semblance of legitimacy to it. But the fix is in everywhere. Okay, so people who don't want this have got to get really creative if they want to deal with the law at all. 
be equally creative. Go after these people, like they were saying on electoralvote.com, go after them every month, maybe even every week. And they don't have to even be convicted of a, of a crime. They just have to be uh, part of an insurrection or even if you look at the 14th Amendment, abetting an insurrection. And one can get very creative if you find the right judge. Might, the right judge might buy it if these judges get off of precedent and this and that, which don't matter anymore. You, you can be very creative about what it means to abet an insurrection. And if these folks don't get creative and fight fire with fire, they're just going to keep losing and losing and losing and all of our rights are going to be gone. So if you, you people believe in the rule of law, you got to like be creative with it. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation with Gavin Ray about the problems with the Marxist sociology of uh, Michael Burvoy and Eric Olin Wright. We are pleased to welcome on the podcast today, Gavin Ray. Gavin Ray is a sociologist living in Warsaw, Poland. He's written extensively on Poland and post-socialist capitalism there. He's a founding member of the Left Wing Forward Foundation in Poland and is currently writing an intellectual biography of the Polish left wing economist uh, Tadeusz Kowalik. So Gavin Ray, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Or I guess, Andrew, you stumbled across a paper Gavin wrote four years ago called The Value of Crisis. It's a paper that talks about the field of Marxist sociology and the lack of appreciation for Marxist theory of crisis within some of the key trends within that field and, and tries to argue that a acknowledgement or discussion of Marxist theory of crisis would be invaluable to the development of a, a real Marxist sociology. Uh, and Gavin, you wrote this paper for the World Association of Political Economy Conference in 2018. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. I'd like to add, what's notable is not just sociology in general is not appreciative of Marx's work on crisis, but this is coming from the left uh, and indeed from very noted sociologists who have or did call themselves Marxists. So Gavin, you mostly are discussing the contributions to Marxist sociology of Michael Burrovoy and Eric Olin Wright. Those are probably names that a lot of people are familiar with uh, in the Marxist left, Eric Olin Wright, a longtime influential analytical Marxist who rewrote the same book about class over and over again throughout his life. Michael Burrovoy, who wrote about consent in the workplace. And, you know, I was less familiar with like this term sociological Marxism and their relationship to that term. So your paper was kind of introduction to that for me. Do you want to give us some context? Yeah, I mean, actually, the, the idea came to me from listening to one of your podcasts i remember it was uh, an interview when uh, andrew was speaking and he actually was talking about the the issue of the falling rate of profit and the organic composition of capital and crisis and he said when you know it would be good also to look at uh, how sociologists and other in other fields and geographers and so on how they can use and relate to this theory and it's got me thinking of well, how does this relate into sociology and why have I not seen it in sociology and for Marxist sociologists? Why is this theory, which is central to Marxism, not being applied? And and I sort of started to read around Marxist sociologists more within this context and was led towards the the theories and the, the work of Burroway and, and Wright, because these are the two 
most distinguished leading Marxist sociologists in the English-speaking world. I mean, Boroway, you, you've mentioned the different areas which he was involved in, and he was president of the International Sociological Association from 2010 to 2014. Wright, who, who died in 2019, was the president of the American Sociological Association. These are not minor figures in sociology, and they are two people who openly described themselves as, as, as Marxists, used some Marxist terminology, and in the early 21st century began this attempt to construct what they called uh, a sociological Marxism. It was an attempt to create a distinct discipline in, in sociology called sociological Marxism, uh, which is obviously, you know, a fairly significant event, as particularly as it was being driven by two very well-known sociologists and renowned sociologists in, in the field. So this was, I was drawn to this to look at it. And then when I looked at it, that they also, not in any hidden way, because often this sort of using Marxist terminology, but, you know, straying away from some of the fundamentals of Marxism, people often do this, but they don't acknowledge it. What Burroway and, and Wright do is to very openly state that they don't agree with many of the fundamental thesis of Marxism and the development of Marxism. So in, in their work, they state a number of things about the long-term non-sustainability of capitalism. Uh, they reject this, the intensification of anti-capitalist class struggle. They reject this and the possible and natural transition to socialism. Obviously, this is more controversial, but they, they also reject this. So they reject very clearly some of the fundamental theses of Marxism, and most particularly the first one about the long-term non-sustainability of capitalism, that capitalism is a system that undergoes periods of intensifying crisis and decay that undermine its possibility of reproduction. So this, this is the first thesis which they say, and then when you read into their work, what they say is that the labour theory of value can no longer be defended, that it's very much, I mean, Alan Freeman talks about often in economics of Marxism without Marx. And this, I think, in sociology is almost going a step far further. It's almost Marxism without Marxism, because, again, they quite openly state that they are more influenced by the readings of people such as Karl Polanyi, his concepts of commodification and double movement, which are influenced by Marx. But, uh, but this is their major influence. And they seem to follow the tradition of sort of Max Weber and so forth, of separating society from the economy, of looking how civil society protects itself against what they call commodification, the need for an active society to protect uh, society against commodification. Again, this is sort of drawn from Polanyi and so forth. And so it was through this reading of this, uh, which I became interested in this. What does it mean that they claim these theses about the long-term non-sustainability of capitalism, for example, that this is cannot be sustained anymore, that they reject the labour theory of value, they reject the idea of uh, the falling rate of profit based upon the rising organic composition of capital, etc., etc. What happens if this isn't true? What happens if they're wrong on this, particularly as their attempt uh, at sociological Marxism really stalled? I mean, they, they were doing this in the first half of the, of the 2000s, and they sort of, after a number of attempts, it was meant to lead to a book, they dropped this. They sometimes sort of said this was because of other commitments and so on. 
but really what what i would argue that it, it sort of hit a dead end very much because events you know i mean maybe at the beginning of 2000s you could hold on to this theory that capitalism is going to crisis from 2007 8 onwards this is an extremely hard position to maintain so there really the thesis they were laying out and and so on was um, proven wrong by events and meant that this idea of creating a sociological marxism failed essentially and so it was from this perspective which i started to write this paper and and to look at this subject this is very interesting because this was one of my questions when when reading your paper is this project term sociological marxism belongs to a particular phase and then it ended and they went on to somewhat other things. You, you, you quote or cite where Borowai became uh, interested in other things, and so they dropped it. But it, it was clear from reading your paper that you thought that they were caught in, in a trap that they had created by predicting <laughs> crisis-free, stable, managed capitalism just a few years before everything blew up and, and the Great Recession uh, came along. Um, is there any, anything in their work that indicates that their sociological Marxism project ran into theoretical difficulty because of the events of the Great Recession and that they would have to revise it in some manner? I mean, they don't revise it. And again, I have to say, I mean, I have a, a, a sociologist. These are people you have to have a certain respect for. They've done a working on class and different things they've done with Burroy. And I remember Burroy's work in Eastern Europe, for example, which I'm interested in. is extremely important when he was working in Hungarian factories during communism and he was in Russia at the end of communism and was had a very kind of harsh critique of a transition and so forth. So these are people who I have in many areas respect for, but they don't really revise this. They don't go back to it. What you see them increasingly doing is moving away from the area of the economy. And this is this again comes back to this sort of influence of, of Weberianism within sociology, which separates the society from the economy. There's also the influence of neoclassical economics into sociology, so neoclassical sociology, which is influential through sociologists such as Parsons and so forth, which believes that there is a certain equilibrium within society, stability in society, when there is disorder, but this is something unusual, and so on. What they do, they are essentially drawn into this sort of hegemony within theoretical sociology. They obviously have a strong critique of capitalism or the effects of capitalism, but, but what they term commodification is, is destructive in many social a- areas of society. And they're very critical of this. But they essentially believe that capitalism has stabilised. That, yeah, I mean, it will go through difficulties and there are social disorders which it creates. But the idea that capitalism is going to reach serious difficulties in in its economic and social reproduction has been proven to be false. And so what they move towards is to looking at, well, this is true, if the economy is essentially going to maintain itself in long-term periods of stability, then we have to look outside of the economic fields to, to society and alternatives which exist within it. So Really, what Wright does, for example, is I think he is he is the one which I think probably moves away from this first, this project of, of sociological Marxism and starts to look at what they call real utopias. So, you know, as there is no particular threat to capitalism from within itself, you know, the internal contradictions of capitalism, we have to look for things outside of it. We have to look for real utopias 
as they call it, within society, it will not replace capitalism as a system, but will create areas within capitalism which are autonomous of it. This is, you know, looking for alternatives outside of the economic realm because there is stability in this. Right. Just to make sure all of our listeners are, are, are following this, this has been Gavin summarizing uh, Eric Olin Wright's position. He has not been speaking about his own thinking r- right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, for example, Wright talks about, you know, he, he, he did a whole project and in his later life about this real utopias and looking for alternatives within the capitalist system, areas of social life which are not commodified. So he, he identifies things such as urban participatory budgeting, workers own cooperatives, even Wikipedia, which is kind of absurd when we know how Wikipedia exists. But it's you know areas which are supposed to exist outside of the commodified relations. This is very popular within sociology. You can look at this, this idea of where areas within capitalism are not affected by this commodified relationship. So you look at uh, Esping Anderson and his theories on the welfare state. You look at People such as Pierre Boudot, his whole kind of emphasis is upon looking at parts of social life which are not supposedly run primarily due to to commodified relations. He didn't actually use the word commodified, but he was more about economic capital, as he described it. I mean, some of this is interesting, some of this is interesting stuff and so on and so forth. But as a general theory of being Marxism into sociology, they were led into a dead end and they had to more or less drop their attempt to construct a, a Marxist sociology. Remember, in after 2008, they had previously been saying that this sort of period of intensifying crisis was in the past and that capitalism didn't undergo these deep periods of crisis and depressions anymore. After 2007-8, they had to sort of try to sort of work out why it was that this crisis had occurred. So there is, you know, I found some speech in where provides a sort of under-consumptionist explanation for the economic crisis. Wright says, yes, this is an extremely serious crisis, but it shouldn't threaten capitalism systematically as a system. So, So they sort of are forced to try to, to explain it, but they don't do this in any systemic way. And they certainly don't go back to the fundamentals of Marxist sociologists and try to readdress this and explain why it is that uh, what they predicted was wrong and what this actually means for, for, social, for Marxism within sociology. So you've talked about how living in a period of capitalist history, which was relatively crisis-free, uh, may have contributed to Bourvoy and Wright and, and others generating theories that focused on stability and rejected notions of crisis. But they're also, you know, if they're going to be doing Marxist sociology, there needs to be some theoretical justification as well for jettisoning Marxist crisis theory. It can't just be, well, crisis isn't happening now because crises are cyclical, right? So um, what was their, like, theoretical justification for jettisoning uh, Marx's theory of crisis. I mean, this is to their credit as well. They don't. They do go back into the fundamentals of Marx's crisis theory, and they, in their papers, they directly start talking about the theory of of Marx of the rising organic composition of capital and the falling rate of profit. Wright is somebody that has written for a longer period on the issues of capitalist crisis and stuff, going back into the crisis of capitalism in the mid-1970s. At this time, Wright argued that there was no empirical evidence showing that the organic composition of capital had risen. He claimed that this was rather a feature of early industrial capitalism, 
uh, as later investments tended to be in capital saving rather than labour saving technologies. And when you say this time, you mean in 2007? Well, no, this is this. This is going back to the seventies. This is going back to this the debates okay. around, yeah, you know, the the economic crisis in 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 the mid nineteen seventies. Class crisis in the state is that his book? Exactly. This is a book yeah. which goes through this. He goes through the different uh, Marxist capitalist theories of crisis, and the first one he talks about is this uh, theory of the rising organic composition of capital, and he says that the well, okay, this was true in early capitalism. This, this theory of Marx, but in later capitalism, this is not true as, as investments tend to be in capital saving rather than labour saving technologies. These are the fastest growing sections of the economy, such as services, which are more labour intensive than industrial production. So this is his argument at this point. His view was that this would be something which will continue and that increasingly that uh, as in, in investments will be less capital investments and the growing areas of the economy will become more labour intensive. This is his theory. Now, this is shown to be wrong over, over the last few decades. As economies develop, so capital in, inputs as a proportion of GDP rise relative to labour input, in, in, inputs, meaning that capital intensive growth tends to replace labour intensive growth. And then in the 2000s, they come back to this again, the early 2000s in their joint paper with of Wright and, and Burroway. Uh, again, they say that Marx's predictions of crisis have been proved wrong, and this is due to flaws in the labour theory of value. Again, repeating uh, Wright's theory, Wright's predictions of uh, of capital intensive investment, et cetera, et cetera. What Wright predicts in in, in the mid 1970s, you have this crisis, the rising of, of, of the price of oil and et cetera, et cetera. And what he says in the 1970s is that um, what will happen is the state will return and begin to invest in the economy. What he believed is that this would reduce the crisis tendencies within capitalism, which can be shown, you know, for example, the competition within the capitalist economy and the world capitalist economy, which leads towards these crisis tendencies, will be reduced because of state intervention. This will also take up what they call effective demand. I mean, they're close to the sort of a monthly review monopoly school theory of capitalist crisis. And they believe that by capitalist investment in the economy will fill the demand gap of, of effective demand. And again, Burroughi writes about this, you know, very following the sort of work of uh, Sweezy and Baran and, and, and so on and so forth. Wright is predicting in the 70s that the state intervention will lead capitalism away from crisis. And he also says that it will increase the parts of the economy and society which are not being run according to the, the laws of, of, of commodity production, of commodification. So he believes that this is going to lead to sort of state-managed capitalism, which will be stable and avoid these periods of, of crisis and depressions. The increase of state investment will prevent the destructive competitive competition between individual capitalists and imbalance between sectors and so on and so forth. So they're going in this direction, sociology, which we know within areas of, of Marxist economics. In their sociological Marxism paper in the 2000s, date this, that this has been, what we have shown is that first of all, empirically, capitalism isn't reaching crisis like it did before. And theoretically, the predictions of Marx of the rising organic composition of of capital leading to the falling rate of profit has been proven to be uh, internally inconsistent and should be rejected. 
and this means that we need to create a new form of, 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 of Marxist sociology. And this was where I start to write about this, saying, well, first of all, I would say that empirically this hasn't been shown to be true. And all of the later debates within Marxism, including the TSSI school and so on and so forth, have also, I mean, I don't go into this in the paper, I don't go into the details of this debate, but in a sense, I accept the TSSI explanation as showing uh, the consistency of Marxist theory and, uh, uh, and the Marxist theory of crisis based upon the rising organic composition of capital. Gavin mentioned the Okishio theorem and the TSSI, which stands for the Temporal Single System Interpretation. Uh, we've discussed both concepts on the podcast in the past. Maybe we should even link to those in the podcast description so if people need more background on those, they should. But the Temporal Single System Interpretation, with An which Andrew has had a big part of developing, is an uh, interpretation of Marxist value theory, which um, shows that Marxist value theory and his theory of crisis can be read in a way which is internally consistent and shows that the Kishio theorem was a theorem that claimed to show that Marx's theory of crisis of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall was internally inconsistent. Uh, the TSSI refutes the Okishio theorem to, to be brief. But these, these ideas that, that there is a way of reading Marx which renders his value theory consistent, which renders his theory of crisis consistent, those ideas have had a real struggle to gain acceptance in a lot of fields of Marxist economics and I assume also Marxist sociology since I hear a lot a lot of the themes that you're talking about, Gavin, you know, I'm familiar of hearing those themes in like the regulation school, the social structure of accumulation school, like the David Harvey camp, um, the monthly review school, a lot of these same themes, which are based around this idea of like a stable state managed capitalism and which all in some form reject Marx's theory of crisis. I, you know, I wonder if you have a sense of like TSSI, which is, I want to say new, but it's even not that new. All right. I mean, it's been around for decades. Have, have there been defections in sociology from this, this notion of Marx's failed crisis theory? Have there been defections from this Okishio centered sociology over the years? Or is that still like the reigning paradigm for doing Marx's sociology? I mean, there hasn't been this is again when when I started to read uh, this work on of Bowery and Wright. Then I, you know, looked around and tried to find other stuff. Has anyone else sort of critiqued this? You know, I, ex I almost expected to find a sort of literature on this of a, at least a, some sort of critique, because the main thesis of, of their paper was so obviously, at least empirically and theoretically, questionable. And I couldn't really find anything on this. I mean, what, what again, it comes back to the sort of Weberian sociology, because what Weber believed was that as this of what capitalism was based upon was rationality. What differentiated capitalism from previous systems? Previous economic systems are based upon, this is according to Max Weber, upon tradition, whereas capitalism is a rational system. And this, this is what makes it different to other economic systems. This is obviously very questionable. That first of all, in previous systems, that they weren't rational in their behavior. It was rational in different conditions. And also that capitalism is a rational system where we know that a large parts of, of uh, production is, is irrational. 
But what Max Weber believed is that as so-called sort of technological rationality of capitalism developed and you have a, a growth of large corporations and organizations and bureaucracy becomes strong within society, you have this sort of inhuman, dehumanized sort of stability within capitalism. And this has been taken by other areas of, of, of Marxism, like the Frankfurt School, particularly are influenced by this. So the believing what I call in the paper, it's like a, dy a utopian dystopia, because they paint a picture of capitalism. It's stable, it's lasting, it doesn't go through periods of crisis and so forth. Although we are, it's inhuman, yeah, we're, we're being controlled by technology and scientific rationality. There's little room for critical human thought and expression and so on and so forth. So it's a critique of capitalism, but within a capitalism which is stable, although has uh, a lack of human creativity and critical thinking, etc., and, and so forth. So this is very much taken and accepted by large parts of Marxist sociology, which I would say is not Marxist sociology. It's it's essentially Weberian sociology. Now, when we look at you know, as you were saying, what are there any sort of breaks away from this within Marxist sociology? I mean, when just just by doing a literature review, and maybe some listeners know of critiques which I haven't found myself, but certainly in the English language speaking world, I mean, it's very little. I mean, on, on this issue of of the refutation of the myth of inconsistency and this proof of the Akisha theorem gaining any traction in sociology, in the experience that I've had, it's gone in the other direction. The powers that be are very good at manufacturing consent, as it were. I, I knew uh, somebody who was uh, a graduate student in Eric Olinwright's uh, graduate program, you know, a sociology grad student, and he said, well, you know, you know, the temporal single system interpretation has disproven the, you know, what you're saying about uh, internal inconsistency and so forth, and uh, Wright did not defend his claim that Marx's value theory is inconsistent, he said, well, assuming you're right, well, where would that get us? You know, in the end, this person who's now a teaching sociologist, got his uh, PhD with Wright as his advisor about eight years ago, that's how it ended up. And so, I mean, I think one reason that this doesn't gain traction uh, is because the, the, the powers that be have the power to prevent that. But, but second of all, Sociologists seem not to be able to really handle the nuts and bolts of this in the main. So even someone like Eric Owen Wright, I mean, he, he uses this as a trope. But, you know, I think that the, the anecdote I just told you indicates that, you know, he really couldn't, when push came to shove, back up his claims. So it, the, the way this stuff plays out in sociology is more, not in terms of the technical economics, but uh, these are themes that get used in service of a certain purpose, it seems to me. Again, it's the kind of Weberian, which is essentially a neoclassicalism within sociology. I mean, I, w I was going a long way back, you know, when I was at university and so forth. You were taught, well, almost as it was obvious that this sort of Marxist theory, the, the real nuts and bolts of Marxism and labor theory of value and, and the theory of crisis, this was so obviously just been proved wrong. But what you could keep from Marx was this idea of the sort of dehumanizing elements of, of capitalism, the alienation, but not the actual... Not, not really Marxism, but just, just parts on the side. And this is exactly what Burroway and Wright do. They make this very clear on this, that they're moving away from production to the market. They're rejecting the labor theory of value. Their main influence is Karl Polanyi and his theory of commodification and the double movement. I have a question about this whole double movement 
and the commodification and everything. And you were talking about it earlier, and it seems to me that what the whole double movement of Polanyi is about, and what Burroy and Wright and others glommed onto, is this idea that there's somehow a split between economy and society, that these are two separate realms, and you talked about looking for things within society that are not capitalistic. And you mentioned, like, this just abandons not only Marx, but Marxism. And I'm thinking, yeah, what does it abandon? And to me, what came to mind was in the introduction to the Grundrisse, Marx says, capital is the all-dominating power of modern society the all-dominating power of modern society, and so there is no split where there's the economy over here, which is rational choice, thinking, as opposed to something called society over there, with its traditions and norms and so forth, and they're in a battle. And that, that, that's basically what, correct me if I'm mistaken, Polanyi's double movement seems to me to be a battle, is that what we would today call the neoliberals, which were back then called the liberals, the pro-market types, they really, you know, went to town in the 19th century, and that, however, you know, the deregulation, the all of the, the turning of society into more and more market-oriented stuff, that destabilized society, that threatened society, and so what happened is society reacted. You had the reaction from, like, the landlord class, you had the reaction from the working class, but in the end, despite their differences, landlords and, and workers, these are coming from society. So there was the fight back of society to protect itself. And for me, this is just like, makes me like more appreciative of Maggie Thatcher when she says there is no such thing as society. But as a sociologist, how do you react to that? Yeah, I, that's a good quote, because we always, we always attack this quote normally. But in, in some ways where society is put up to such a level outside of the economy, maybe there's some truth in it. Because if you take the element of Marx in Polanyi, then it's essentially the idea that greater areas of life are reduced to its exchange value which destroys its use value. This is the sort of essence of it. Now, there is, you can see that in Marx, in the way Marx talks about this, how capitalism destroys the base of its own reproduction. And this is sort of the Polanian idea. And therefore, he, he also has this theory of the fictitious commodities. So there are certain things, again, this is Polanyi's idea, if something has been created as a commodity, then that is a commodity. But some things have existed before and have been turned into commodities. And he calls these fictitious economies. He says money, land and labor are the three commodities. And they, as, they, as they get more and more commodified within capitalist development, then this destroys the use value of these. And society pushes back, according to Polanyi. And this creates the sort of social conditions for the market to survive. This is, again... You can see some elements of Marx in there, but this is also very much situated within Weber, the idea of the role of the state and regulating the market and so forth, which is central within Weber, and also within Emil Durkheim, one of the other great founders of sociology, who talked about the sort of the social underpinnings of the market, the necessary for the market to be embedded in society. And this has been very influential in parts of sociology like uh, Granovetter's theory of networks and many theories are looking of how 
how the market has to be embedded, has to be socially embedded in order to survive. What happens with Baroy and Wright is they take this idea, and again, it's exactly as you said, it's separating the society from the economy. It comes to the real utopias as well. What we have to do is to find ways of creating boundaries around areas of social life, which will protect these against the encroachments of the market. Burroy writes about this. Information was one of these things he's, he's talking about that needs to be protected and areas of autonomy within the internet and so on and so forth have to be protected and pushed back against this commodification. What this does as well, it completely leaves out any concept of exploitation, exploitation within production. It leaves this out completely. There's no mention of this. And it moves, again, they say this very straightforwardly, it means that you you move out of production into exchange. Uh, This is the focus we have to look at. So Marx looked at the crisis tendencies based within production and so on and so forth. This has been proven to be false, according to Burroy and Wright. And while we're looking at the areas of how society is protecting itself against this encroachment, against turning parts of life into exchange, uh, into into commodified relations. Now, Burroy as well, uh, he writes an article in Sociological Marxism where he takes this theory of Polanyi and he also uses Gramsci. He says that Gramsci was the same. Gramsci was the same as Burroy. Gramsci was interested in exchange and the market and not on production. This is completely you know, this is just wrong. I mean, I'm not saying it's a lie, it's, but it's just false. If you, one of Gramsci's most famous pieces on modern capitalism in his time in the, in the 1920s, in the prison notebook, is on American capitalism and Fordism. And Fordism is a reference to Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company, right? So it's about production. And the Fordist system of production, Gramsci is very clear on this. He says fascism is the ultimate stage of capitalism, which is attempting to overcome the long-term tendency for the rate of profit to fall. He saw that also Fordism, this sort of rationalization of production, lowering of production costs, etc., was, was an answer to this, an attempt to overcome these contradictions. And he writes within this note on Americanism and Fordism, uh, the whole of social life now revolves around production and that the structure has gained dominance over the superstructure. So I'm not sure where Burroway got this from. I mean, it's just a, it's just a mis- complete misreading or lack of reading of Gramsci's. Yeah, I, I thought that was a very strong aspect of, of your paper. It's, it's rather short, but it's decisive. But what kind of blew my mind is Burroway, who spent God knows how many weeks, you know, uh, over how many years in factories here, there, everywhere in the world, how he could like just so blithely move from, oh, production's not important to markets are important. I, I can't explain it. I, I don't want to come up with some psychological explanation or something. And I, I can't explain why. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayev. 
Dostoevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So, Gavin, your paper tries to make a case to sociology uh, about what kind of insights might be garnered by in Marx's production-centered theory of value and crisis seriously, looking at sociology through that lens. Maybe you can give us our listeners a little bit of a taste of some of those insights. Like, for instance, you talk about the fragmentation and intensification of work. How does that, you know, relate to to Marx? I mean, we take it from Gramsci again. I mean, what Gramsci was was saying in the early 20th century leading into fascism was that within this Fordist system of production, that there is a socialization of workers and society into this new mode of production. So capitalism attempts to subject the human natural instincts and desires to the norms of and habits of order, discipline, mechanical repression, workers working in in large factories and so forth, of having to carry out repetitive, disciplined, mechanical work. So this creates a very much staid moral order of disciplined, routine workers within factory production. And this is obviously maintains a part for a large number of workers in the world today. Because what we have in the contradiction of, of capitalism is we accept the idea of the rising organic composition of, of capital, which then creates 
disequilibrium and disorder and crisis, because this is the sort of contradiction you have. Now it's one where we see these rising technologies on, on different technologies now within the internet and so forth and networked productions and, and so on and so forth. Now it's one where it increasingly creates a sort of atomized worker, a, a worker which is expected to survive and in compete in increasingly competitive and unstable work environment where your social and personal life is undergoing perpetual change and disorder. As I said, this has been recognised by other sociologists, and this isn't something new, this idea of anxiety, burnouts and so forth. The Polish sociologist Zygmunt Bauman has written a large amount of this without relating it to the Marxist theory so forth. It's a form of alienation, which of course comes out of the labour theory of value. This alienation of increased probably the major contradiction of our times in a way, or one of the major contradictions of, of the social world in capitalism, where we have a rising of scientific advances in, in technology, surrounded more and more by this technology, which should be able to free us and free our time up more and make life easier and, and more enjoyable, but also are, are increasingly in reality becoming tools which are disciplining us into work, are making us new forms of work which are round the clock and 24-7, new forms of exploitation, contributing to these new sort of social disorders of anxiety, burnout, illnesses, disorders, and, and so on and so forth. So this is this, this inverse relationship between humans and technology. And as this sort of technologies and for which are being developed, which should, you would hope, be creating a world which is more stable, more order, it's creating more disorder. And I think this contradiction, I mean, in, in my article, I sort of just try to point to areas which could be interesting for sociological research, which comes out of Marx's theory of crisis. Yeah, I think your paper makes a good case for um, why a lot of the modern relationship between work and technology and the way technology has transformed uh, our work lives and the blurring of work and home life and all those angles, a lot of those could really benefit from a sociology that, that is production-centered and looks at these phenomena through a uh, lens informed by Marx's crisis theory, his theory of value. We can't really cover all the points you made in your paper here, but we'll, of course, link to it so people can read it for themselves. Um, maybe sociologists listening will be inspired to to do some of this work. I definitely think there's a parallel between what you're describing here in sociology and what we described a few months ago in, in a podcast when we, were, when we were discussing the ecological Marxism of John Bellamy Foster and the Monthly Review School and their concept of metabolic rift. The, the issue that they face is they're trying to theorize a concept of ecological crisis that is not centered in capitalist production because they have this notion of stability that's it's central to the monthly review school. And so they're trying to like theorize crisis on the um, edges of capitalist production, which is a, a really difficult task because it's capitalist production that's driving the ecological crisis, right? But they, they have to find it at like the intersection of capital and like the non-capital world in this like uh, primitive accumulation. Anyway, they have this theory that's to the extent that there is ecological crisis that's explained by their theory. It's a very peripheral and type of crisis that's not the central environmental issues over time, like climate change 
or a species extinction, you know? So they have this issue where, you know, to the extent that they're describing anything at all, it's peripheral, but they use that peripheral explanation to try to act like it describes everything, right? And I feel that's kind of what you're saying about sociology. It's like, not, it's not that like commodification, decommodification are things that don't exist as issues, but they're not the central issues in capitalism. Like the role of technology, the revolutionizing of technology and its effect on uh, production and work and our experience of work and how in a modern world our work like extends into our personal lives and our homes and we carry our supercomputer in our pocket all the time in the form of, a, they call it a phone, but it's really like a time card that you're punching all the time, right? You're like punching into work in the middle, you wake up at two in the morning, you like check your work emails. So there's this sense of like uh, the production process, like permeating all of your personal life and then all the disorder and alienation of modern life that is comes along with that way of the technology and it like permeates life. Like that's a, that seems to describe a lot of the real essence of what a sociology should, should be looking at. Whereas yeah, you could talk about commodification, but that seems kind of per a peripheral concern. And so it's this way of like taking these peripheral things, but treating them as if they can explain the, the real meat of things. That is one of the mistakes that happens. And that's maybe it comes from just the Weberian tradition or reading Polanyi, but also maybe from this people's inability to accept the fact that this whole paradigm of stability, this whole like monthly review, regulation theory, sense of like stability and of capitalist production is is a really flawed starting point for building a, a theory, whether you're it's a ecological theory or an economic theory or a sociolo sociological theory, they run into the same dead ends. This is essentially what I'm kind of penciled in this article and, and think is the areas which need to be explored. And I've outlined a couple of these in the second part of the text, because this competitive nature of capitalism, etc. You know, if we, if we were to accept the sort of monthly review, monopoly school thesis, uh, which has been taken by Burroy and Wright and so forth, then there's no real internal logical reason why we would have this continual drive to create these new technologies, to replace old technologies with new ones. Going away from this Weberian separation of society and economy and taking away this acceptance of, of, of a form of stability uh, and order within the capitalist system and actually going back to Marx and looking at how these processes within production affect our social lives and social relations. I think this is the, it's not the only thing that can be done in sociology, but it's a, it's an area, if you're going to do Marxist sociology, this is an area returning Marx into Marxist sociology and, and offers up areas for fruitful research, which have often been neglected. Yeah, I just want to make a couple of comments, not really on the details of what Gavin is saying, but just this Polanyian turn among these folks in, in sociology, I, I find it very worrisome. First of all, I'm reminded by, you know, Gavin saying that their predictions prior to the Great Recession, you know, the capitalism had stabilized, you know, that all blew up in their face. But the track record of Polanyi in general has not been great. Polanyi himself, when he wrote 
the Great Transformation. And, you know, in that period, he was fully expecting the end of market society and the takeover of, you know, the advanced world by either the USSR, you know, or, or fascism. So it, things didn't go in that way. And that, I think that's something we, we need to get behind. But the other thing is, it seems to me that what is driving a lot of this stuff, the return to Polanyi is a political project. Uh, and it's a political project that's basically a, a populist turn on the left. You get the, the whole anti-neoliberal left. When you, you look at the ideology, it's, it's, it's coming from Polanyi, uh, mediated through people like Nancy Fraser, a philosopher in the U.S. And when when you say, well, you know, there's a double movement. There's the, the neoliberals. There's the you know the the free market people, and then there's society's reaction. You know, the way Polanyi had it is it was the reaction of the landlords and the and the workers who somehow were on the same side. Well, the modern expression of that is, you know, all all the all the, the progressive people and and the, and the workers are are against this. And you know, then there's all the Trumpite, the, the middle class, the, the the people who have their own small businesses and so forth. And no matter how reactionary they are, they're, they're not these uh, neoliberal types either, and we can make common cause with them, and we can appeal to them, you know, we're all together against the corporations and against neoliberalism and so forth. I find it very worrisome, and there's got to be something really wrong when a Marxist theorist of class, like uh, Eric Owen Wright, gets reduced to this person who is talking about, you know, the reaction of society, undifferentiated in terms of class, against markets and so forth. Something is seriously going wrong. That's my view. Well, I I think this has been a great discussion. So, Gavin, Ray, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to join Thanks for coming and speaking with us, Gavin. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.